0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'm very happy today that we have Jeremy Black on the network. He's been on many times. He's the author of many, many books about many, many topics. I know that many of the listeners love to hear from Jeremy because he seems to know almost everything. There are some people like that. There really are. Today, what we're going to be talking about is empire, the word empire, and the historical fact of empires, what an empire is, what an empire isn't, what role they have played in history. And similar sorts of things. It'll be a very broad discussion. Uh, We might mention some books. We might not mention some books. But I really want to hear what Jeremy has to say about this because he's written a lot about these uh, sorts of things. And he's from a country that actually had a really big empire at one time. That being, I want to say England, but I know you're not supposed to say that. The United Kingdom. I guess it's still an empire because it's united. Is the United Kingdom an empire,
1: Jeremy? I'm not sure it's united. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know whether it's an empire. You could probably ask the Argentinians what they think about the Malvinas, or you could ask the Spaniards what they think about Gibraltar. Um, The British don't certainly think of themselves as imperial anymore, so probably no. Probably no. What if I ask a Scot
0: or a Welshman or a a Well? (laughs) This is it,
1: isn't it? You get this. I mean, already you've come to the crunch of the problem, which is that there there that empires or what it might to be empires are perceived um you know, very, very differently uh, from the perspective of outside and also from the perspective of within. And secondly, that there is, as it were, a difference between what you might call a functional empire, in other words, China today as an empire, and, and what they call themselves, what they think of themselves. In other words, the majority Chinese don't think of themselves as an empire, though clearly your perspective might be very different if you're in Tibet um, or if you're in Shinkian, or for that matter, if you do not like uh, the prospect of Chinese rule in Taiwan.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. So let's get to the crux of the linguistic issue. This is a word that is Uh, fraught with difficulties because it seems to have many meanings that people conflate it with other things and they differentiate it from things it shouldn't be differentiated from. Is there any neutral accepted definition of an empire? I'm laughing because I, I, I wouldn't want to answer that question myself.
1: Well, the answer is there isn't. And there isn't, not least, if you look at that question across space and across time. So in other words, if you were looking at the present moment, I mean, it's not literally if we were just going to be talking to a Chinese person about politics. If you were actually looking in other languages at the present day, you would find words which do not necessarily have completely coterminous meanings. And So what one is pushed back with, and this is not necessarily a bad thing because there is a difference between, on the one hand, the idea of very rigid analytical typologies, and on the other hand, the complete mess of postmodernist Anything is what you think you like. They're actually, both of those are deeply flawed. The postmodernism is ridiculous because it creates the idea that you can imagine yourself as whatever you would like to be. And obviously, we can see that at the moment with people imagining themselves as whatever they want to be. But you can imagine yourself as what whatever you want to be. And that ignores fundamental realities. Um, You know, you might get cold in place A, but not place B. It is colder in place A, but not in place B. Some people have more genetic characteristics that we would generally regard as male than others do, and so on and so forth. So, you know, you can have that situation of reality um, uh, uh, in which you say, no, we mustn't accept a postmodernist mess. But on the other hand, to go for rigid... Analytical concepts in which meanings have a unitary meaning across time and space, as if they are a mathematical notation, and as if history, therefore, is a science uh, with a fixed notational system, is naive. Uh, it is also risks. Um, I don't like using the term privileging but let's just say it risks putting a priority on some interpretations rather than others. So what I've tried to do in a number of my books, I've tried to do it in uh, when I wrote on geopolitics, I've tried to do it when I've written on maps, I've tried to do it uh, when I've written on war, is to accept that there are workable definitions which are not accepted by all and which indeed at any one time one knows are less than complete and to also say that it's not terribly helpful to get stuck in definitional terms. I mean, you see it when you know it. I mean, in other words, whatever you might say, however you play with the definitions, Luxembourg is not an empire. So, you know, there are there are, <laughs> there are there are practical... And, you know, I couldn't prove in definitional terms that Luxembourg isn't an empire. Maybe Luxembourgers have an ambition to be an empire. I don't know. But you and I will know, and our listeners will know, that Luxembourg isn't an empire. So I think working a working assumption assuming that the people listening which we are you know that people are not stupid they don't need a fixed definition to understand things so on that basis let's just talk about empires
0: all right so and i didn't prepare you for this question so you may not be able to answer it but i bet you can what is the history of the word empire
1: the history of the concept of yeah. empire uh, goes right the way back. The time, I would, I would say, when it most features at an early stage in uh, in contemporary understandings is very much the Greek perception of the Persians. I mean, obviously, there are empires prior to that. One can, one can think, for example, of Egyptian expansion into the Near East. Um, you know, and I, I think I've already mentioned China. So there, the imperial reality comes there before, shall we say, we can find text or looked at differently. Text can be seen differently so that if you want... Sorry, that's a terrible sentence, but I'm tired. Jet lagged. Looked at differently, text can be understood in a variety of ways. So if you're looking at the... you know, Rameses II and other uh, imperial rulers and the way they are celebrated um, in uh, in stone and in other decorative media, and the same with the Assyrians, they are uh, celebrating the fact that they are able to act in a, as an imperial presence without there necessarily being a written text to say that they are. But if you're thinking about the Greeks responding to the Persians, the Greek uh, perception of the Persians provides, a lot of the background of the sort of the origins of what one might call an anti-imperial rhetoric in the sense that here you are, you're, you're the Greeks, you present yourself as civilized and you present yourself as having a vast force of others who you see as uh, barbarians of some shape or other. We're not talking about accuracy here. We're talking about perception. And you then embark on a heroic struggle, and that heroic struggle sees a number of episodes, so Marathon out of the first invasion, um, Thermopylae and Salamis out of the second invasion. And from that, you construct a mythos of a anti-imperial reality in which there was an empire that's outside. Of course, the hilarious thing is that Athens then subsequently, as we know, acts as an imperial power um, and uh, brutalizes those within its uh, Athenian-ruled federal system which don't do what it wants, and that in a sense, you've then got the second point, which is always true, which you um, referred to at the beginning, which is that empire is a matter of perception. So many states today, if we can bring this up to the present moment, which ground themselves on an anti-imperial historical myth. In other words, we were founded by breaking free from this evil empire, let's say the Brits or the French, or from fighting this other evil empire, let's say the Americans. And we, of course, are, you know, sort of pure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well- I think if you were a, a Yemeni suffering the uh, the uh, arrival of Egyptian soldiers in the 1960s, or if you lived in Papua New Guinea, the western side of, sorry, the western side, Irian Ir- 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 New Guinea, and suffering from the, the Indonesians, or for that matter, when the Indonesians went into East Timor, you might have had a very different view of what is empire. And I think this is a very important point. But rather than it Presenting due to a failure of definition, what it reflects rather is that there are always differing ways to uh, to um, to understand uh, a a a reality, and the reality, of course, is the nature of power and the threat that power place poses to other interests.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, a, a friend of mine, and I'm sure this is not original to him, uh, liked to say that uh, an empire is what you call. a uh, competitor state that has just defeated you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean I think I think certainly what that com- captures is a modern perception, but a perception that certainly you could also see back through time. It has a long historical genesis. Now today, the idea of being an empire is bitterly unpopular, so nobody wants to call themselves an empire, and therefore you immediately present imperialism as something that the other does. Going back in time, it wasn't quite the same because not everybody was unhappy about being seen as an empire. But nevertheless, you would pose the values of a hostile imperialism on those who were your opponents. And um, you would apply that with a very vigorous brush in order to present them as an existential challenge to yourself. And one last point before we move on. Um, in looking at the origins of empire, we tend to do this in obviously a secularist fashion, which reflects, you know, our, our our modern perceptions. But it's worth bearing in mind that empire, for many people, clearly carried with it a sense of providential destiny. Uh, of course, that that lasted definitely into the early twentieth century. But if you go back in time, that providential destiny, in part was related to the idea that the emperor figure was a semi semi god as it were or or indeed a god, or it could carry out on behalf of the people sacral type of rites, so there is this na- this notion of um, imperialism in which the ruler is a a deistic or semi-deistic or priestly figure. Um, And you can see that in China. You can see that in Egypt. You can see that, for example, in Mesoamerica, what we might call Mexico, uh, with the Aztecs in the 15th century. And that notion of rulership is important, uh, and it gives you a much deeper sense of rival empires, because these are rival, if you want to use the term religion as magic, in the sense that the the uh, the ruler is applying magic, or is able to sort of focus the the potency of their links to the deities. A uh, deities, you know, things like ancient Rome. Um, then I think that's very, very important to the tradition of empire. And I think we can sharpen that up in the case of, I mean, obviously it's true of the Chinese uh, trajectory, but we can sharpen that up in the case of a number of empires. And if you're thinking of the Ottoman Empire, for example, the the degree to which the Ottoman Sultan was a caliph, the degree to which the Ottoman Sultan was the guardian of the holy pra- places in Medina and Mecca gives them a particular role It doesn't mean that people don't rebel. It doesn't mean that many sultans weren't murdered. But it certainly means that you cannot present uh, Ottoman imperialism simply as if it was taking part in some optimal form of political organization, which is the way a lot of people discuss things. Or, of course, if you're looking at the West's tradition, one of the significant aspects of the West's tradition is that, of course, it is under imperial Rome that Christianity becomes the established religion um, in Europe. It's under imperial Spain and Portugal that it becomes the established religion and what becomes Latin America. And therefore, there is a particular degree of authority that goes with the imperial legacy, particularly in Europe, the legacy of going back to Rome, and you can see that with the way in which Charlemagne in 800, you know, the leading—if you wish to use the term—barbarian, you know, I'm putting it in inverted commas. But if you, the leading barbarian ruler, the you know of 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 what had been the Western Roman Empire, the way he goes to Rome, the way he gets himself crowned as emperor, the way he re. Charges in the West in a parallel way to Byzantium in the Eastern Roman Empire. He recharges the imperial legacy because he sees that legacy as significant. And the gap today is that in many countries there are obviously functioning empires. You know, modern India is a functioning empire. You've only got to ask some Kashmiri who's having the, <laughs> you know, the, the, the guts kicked out of him by some Indian policeman. Um, you know, modern India is a functioning... Empire, but the um, they they are not looking back to the tradition of Mughal India or the traditions of uh, of pre-Mughal empires, let alone to the evil Brits.
0: Yes, I think what you say is absolutely true in the Russian case, which I know best because when the Russian state formed, it was actually the Muscovite state at the time in the sixteenth century. Really, they went far back and invented what was essentially a genealogy that connected them to Roman emperors. I mean, the word czar is a derivation of Caesar, and they thought of themselves as a bearer of this imperial legacy that
1: went back. Were they Rome? were yes. the third well, Rome? Yes, well, yeah, that, because...
0: that's a, I can say a lot about that. I wrote a lot about yeah. that. And but it's...
1: Yeah, but it's, you can, yeah. but on top of that, let's also point out that they weren't the only people in the Byzantine world that did that. The Bulgars <laughs> no, no, did exactly the same thing in the <laughs> yeah. 11th century. And you could argue, if you really wanted to be interesting as well, you could argue that there are deg- extents to which the Ottomans draw on elements of the Byzantine tradition. And there is the argument, I personally think it's a bit forced, but nevertheless, there is the argument that the competition in the uh, early 16th century between Suleiman the Magnificent and the Emperor Charles V, Habsburg Empire, is in both cases looking back deliberately and explicitly uh, to Roman elements and competing for the legacy of the Roman Empire. I think there's much else, in fact. But nevertheless, in iconographical terms, that is certainly there. And there is also this deep nature of a, of, of a of societies that are reverential of the past and referential to the past. And what is interesting at the present day, if you're in, let us say, the West, or but not just the the West, you could see the same thing in other non-Western societies. Not all of them, is that this willingness to refer to the past in a positive way, in other words, to see um, to see positive structures, positive practices, positive identities in the past, is less uh, is less pronounced, and sometimes is directly controverted, of course. And therefore, we don't really find it so easy to appreciate the way that in the past, people who, for example, might be supporting change, let's say um, let's say, Protestants in the 16th century with the Reformation, the way they often presented that is to go back to what they saw as the primitive virtue of the early church against the accretions of, uh, as they saw it, uh, the papacy, rather than to say, right, chaps, we're starting anew, because the notion of starting anew of seeking a mandate in some way, whether democratic or other, um, from wherever you are at the moment is in practical terms, quite a modernistic one.
0: Yes, I, I think that's right. I want to stick with the medieval and early modern moment for a second, because one of the things I know from studying the Russian empire is that. From the perspective of the Russians, and and I mean the elites here who were building it, it was a very good thing. And they had lots of reasons to say that people should want to be under Russian rule. And I I think one of the things they said is that they would bring to them not only Orthodox Christianity, which they obviously had a vested, indeed, spiritual interest in, but also they would pacify very large areas that were often at war. And they they claimed to act uh, as—and I think they did— act as a kind of policeman from afar. And this can be a very good thing for people, they argued.
1: Yes, I would I would agree with that. I think that the notion that empire is inherently a bad thing, because it represents the uh, suppression of, uh, you know, um, sort of uh, a kind of Saxon myth of free peoples congregating together in primeval forests, being, being pure and having nice thoughts, and then there you get these evil barbarian empires bringing in sort of cruel things like sort of the the perils of civilization or eating meat or some such Thing you don't like. Um, I think that is really a, a sort of fantasy. This sort of, um, and in practical terms, firstly, M, the choice between empire. The choice, if you were not, and uh, if you're looking at empire, is either often between different empires or between empire and a form of chaos. Um, and that form of chaos was often that of uh, tribal chiefs fighting each other it was often that, and I mean, it's, indeed, it's worth bearing in mind if you're looking at Greece, since Greece tended to be the first of the great narrators of an anti-imperial um, ideology. It's worth bearing in mind that Philip of Macedon, uh, who obviously conquers Greece and who is denounced by Demosthenes, you know, those Demosthenes texts are important. I think, mean, you know, the Greeks have been kicking the hell out of each other before Philip of Macedon turns up. And, and just as for that matter, Uh, something that people found it quite convenient to forget about um, when um, the Persians turned out um, the The Greeks were uh, already antagonistic to each other, and indeed, on the basis of that, some, as in Thessaly, for example, a Boetica, cooperated uh, with the Persians, whereas others opposed them so um, yeah, I would agree with you Empire was often a form of um, keeping the peace, and not that that was necessarily the intention, but it was often the consequence and ironically. If you wish to use, and I'm not necessarily saying that I endorse this view, but if you want to think about the modern notion which would traction in the 1990s with people like Tony Blair of liberal interventionism as, you know, sort of, as it were, supporting some sort of set of norms against whatever you didn't like. And let's be clear about this. What they didn't like was, in many senses, not very attractive. But nevertheless, there was a quasi-imperial character to it, whether or not it was dressed up as imperialism or not. And that then takes you to the next stage. You know, if you are um, being policed by some United Nations army or some force from NATO or some force from the EU, um, or at the but behest of those organisations, or indeed of you know, other, there are you know, there's an African equivalent, and so on. It's not just um, uh, not just the organisations we're talking about. If that is the case, you may feel you are in receipt of a form of pressure that is that is akin to that of being subject to an empire. Now, the fact that um, it might not call itself an empire doesn't mean you don't necessarily uh, understand it in that light.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think the starting point of all. Well, maybe it's not the starting point because historians don't like starting points, but perhaps the starting point of all modern criticism of empires is in fact uh, some form of nationalism that kind of crystallizes, I guess, in Wilsonian principles that again goes back to this kind of myth of free peoples gathering together in a kind of Rousseauian way and, I don't know, circling around the fire and deciding their fate because they all speak the same language and... Worship the same gods, supposedly. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of that particular criticism? Oh yes.
1: Well, that idea—that idea goes right the way back. So, if you go and so if you go back to antiquity, you could see, for example, and let's just stick to the. I mean, I could talk about the Chinese legacy, but let's just stick with the European one because I think listeners would be most familiar with that. Um, if you're looking at the european one so you see tacitus's description of the caledonians in his agricola or josephus's description of the jews are are both of them presenting peoples in that light fighting against rome the caledonians uh, eventually uh, successfully, which is why Gibbon gets interested in them. Um, the Jews eventually unsuccessfully, which ironically is why Jewish ideas, not notably in the shape of Christianity, are able to spread much more widely than Caledonian ideas. Not that I'm saying that the Caledonians necessarily <laughs> had, had comparable ideas, but you get the point, the irony yeah. of history. And then if you look at um, the medieval period, um, I mean, there are earlier and other, other examples, but if I could give you a few, the idea, the mythos that developed among the Swiss fighting the Habsburgs or the Scots fighting the English or the Flemings fighting the French, um, all of those um uh, play a role Uh, I mean obviously you'll be familiar also with the way in which the Russians tap into an idea about themselves being against expansion by the Teutonic Knights and by the Swedes so all of those ideas are there in present during what we call the medieval age uh, if not earlier and you use the term nationalism and maybe at one stage we ought to have uh, a a podcast on nationalism because what's interesting about this is so often historians many of whom I'm afraid to say, and I'm sure they're individually nice people and might be kind to their dogs, but many of whom I'm afraid to say tend to focus on what they work on as the key element. Most historians of nationalism work on the last 200 years, so what a surprise. They say you get true nationalism in the last 200 or 250 years, and that prior to that you didn't get true nationalism. You got something that might be called proto-nationalism, but it wasn't true nationalism. I think that's ridiculous. I think that's absolutely absurd. A third of the d- distinction. And much that we would associate with a sort of anti-imperial nationalism is present in the medieval period and really is pushed started in Europe even further in the 16th century. So if you're thinking about Luther, you're thinking about works like Ulrich von Hütten's Arminius, looking back, of course, ancient Ro- ancient German opposition to the Romans. If you're thinking about German literature condemning both the emperor, Charles V, uh, and the papacy, you have got uh, what they, what they, what they would call a Caesaropapalism, you have got nationalism there if you're looking at the English counterpart the idea of a national English church um, which is opposed to the authority and power of the Habsburgs and the papacy this is nationalism full kilt um and so so you've got nationalism there, and a lot of that is presented in an anti-imperial guise or form, and, and is believed in that line. But as you yourself have said, I mean, if you look at England in the 16th century, if you were Irish, <laughs> you might not have seen the English as these benign anti-imperial people, and indeed, famously, uh, in the Act in Restraint of Appeals, in other words, saying that nothing should go uh, as an appeal to Rome, and that, that national uh, courts were sovereign Um, you know Thomas Cromwell drafting Henry VIII's legislation has England declared an empire in itself so the very idea of expressing nationalism is to present yourself as an empire. Now, what you're seeing yourself as a meritorious empire, and indeed the English stroke later British had a long tradition of seeing themselves as a meritorious empire and not being at all upset about the idea that people would call them an empire. They were quite happy to use that term. Yeah, now, I, sorry, yeah, go on.
0: I was going to say, I certainly take the point that many historians make that mo- modern nationalism as a political force which evolved i suspect in the well in the 18th or 19th century at least in europe <clears throat> can can be said you can trace it pretty well but i often wonder if many of these historians have ever read the old testament because it certainly looks like in the old testament that that's a kind of nationalism itself the hebrews the jews they they were thinking of themselves as a people who were suffering under other people. This is write well, That's
1: the theme right. of the book. <laughs> you're right. And actually a key a key characteristic of um identity in the ancient worlds, and I say worlds because there were many around the world, our globe, um, is the linkage of sacral authority and a distinctive religious identity to your sense of destiny and to your sense of opposition to other peoples. Now, there are some religions that survive in that fashion today, and which are primarily, you could argue, ethnic religions. And I don't mean that by that to be pejorative or to be praiseworthy. So you can think of Judaism, you can think of the Sikhs, you can think of Shinto in Japan, and those are not by any means unique. But most modern religions claim to be sort of comprehensive, open to everybody, etc, etc, etc. That is not Actually, the way religion generally was as a as a force and an element in the ancient world, and in particular um, as a political force, and so therefore we li- we looped back to Rome. I mean, it is no accident that the Romans had initially before Christianity, so they had many centuries of a pantheon of their own gods. When they conquered somewhere else they would, because they were polytheistic, they would often, if the people were willing, integrate their gods into the Roman pantheon, but of course with the Roman gods being the chief gods, I mean that was the, after all, the key empire that counts as the em- empire in heaven, as it were, the, not, the, not, the, uh, not the things down on earth. And um, so the, the idea was very much of, uh, of religion as a form of power and identity, and obviously that makes them very uh, hostile to those religions of which the druids are a good example in England and eventually not all Jews but eventually the Jews are which are religions that um sort of are apt to reject um this idea of a polytheistic uh, of a polytheistic system.
0: Mm-hmm. Well it's kind of a great irony in the case of Christianity which is about as ecumenical as you can get because pretty much Anybody can become a Christian by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior as I'm from the Midwest and I've seen this many times is that in the in the well in the 15th 16th 17th century essentially the forces of nationalism as a kind of political tool were so powerful that all the Christian churches were essentially nationalized they became they became national entities and the Russian case is very clear here there is a Russian Orthodox Church
1: Yes. And I mean, you could say that much of the political tension, I mean, I would actually sort of take it much earlier than that, much of the political tension and narrative in the way, I mean, you know, Byzantium is a good example of that. And if you look west of Byzantium, much of the political tension is to do with rivalries between emperors and popes. With emperors, of course, if they're not happy with the pope, setting up their own, what was called an anti-pope, and popes trying to overthrow emperors they didn't like. Um, uh, Now, in that period, um, there was also at the same time as there was this greater struggle between west within Western Christendom, there was also an extent to which. Um, in individual polities or countries, let's say what you want, however you want to call them, territories might be better the practicality was actually despite the universal church which is how the Catholic Church presented itself, papacy presented itself there was a great extent to which you know, let's say Peter Linehan's book on Castile in the 13th century I mean, is a book in which essentially the rulers of Castile and the local clergy yes, they get their instructions from innocent the third and most of them they treat them as if you know things that's well that we can ignore that um and so i think one has to be pragmatic here the nature of what in the 16th century was often enacted within the Catholic Church as concordats, which were deals between monarchs or territories and the papacy, in which essentially the papacy accepted that they were going to appoint as bishops or archbishops people who were subjects of that ruler, uh, So, which was a form of nationalization, if you want to use that more modern term. Um, that In reality, that was actually often the case earlier on. Um, and, um, And that, of course, helps to also, if you want to then take the dynamo further, that helps to give you another strand of what you might call uh, this struggle of nationalism if you if you wish to use that term, that the international perspective was often set by international preaching orders or friar orders, so the Franciscans, the Dominicans, later of course, in the sixteenth century, the Jesuits. And of course, um, the, the states, as it were, act against these. And one of the great actions of nationalism, if you wish to use that term, I, I think we, there are other terms we could use, is the way in which the Society of Jesus, the Jesuit order, is suppressed in the second half of the 18th century, precisely because rulers like um, the rulers of Portugal and Naples and of France do not want to have an international order which doesn't obey their instructions. And they're able to draw on a powerful amount of sentiment to that end uh, from within their own countries, including from within the church.
0: Well, I should say this is still going on all over the world. I mean, if you look in the case of Russia, there are lots of what we would call just Christian sex. I mean, from the American perspective, sex, that's just what we do. <laughs> you, know, like, you couldn't count the number of kinds of Protestantism that we have. But from the Russian perspective, you know, having even like Latter-day Saints or Seventh-day Adventists or something such as this in their midst is not a – it's its 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 not a simple thing for them.
1: Yes. No, I, I agree with you. But the point we're, we're drawing around, and this is I think I hope that the listeners will pick up – is that nationalism although often seen as an aspect of modernism modernization and the modern world has a much longer uh, history part of that history being anti-imperial if you wish to use that term and as a cognate of that, imperialism, which is a term which, or or empire if you like, which is a term which is often historicized and treated as pre-modern in some respects, actually can also be applied in the modern age. So what we're trying to do is to take apart the standard chronological assumptions that underlay a lot of the historical analysis.
0: Yeah, I I like the way you put that, because a kind of nationalism can be a kind of Imperialism in the in the example that comes to mind is what I might call I'm just inventing this on the fly, but it kind of it's almost messianic nationalism, and that you see this with especially Americans and and Wilson. I don't know if American is is a nation or an empire. I don't know what it is, but this idea that somehow it's it's fit and proper and only right and all right thinking people believe that. Well, something like self-determination, that every linguistic group or every group that uh, identifies itself as an X ought to have its own nation. And this is just, this is not questioned anymore. This is just a, a fact of the world. Like the, this is the way things have to be.
1: Yes. I mean, obviously it's an absurdity in a number of respects. I mean, leave aside, you you can act, act up giving out, end up giving sovereign power to sort of three people, as it were. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, but I mean, the absurdity is it ignores the extent to which you do not have the organization of the world in this neat homogenous um sections it ignores it leads to the trashing of uh, minority groups Um, So it's no accident that if you were a copt, you were better off under the British Empire than under independent Egypt. If you were a Jew, you were better or an Armenian, you were better off under the British or French empires than you were under successor states, uh, national successor states, so-called. So first of all, there's that element. Second of all, there is the element of mixture. I mean, as I said, you do not get these straight lines separating widely different uh, ethnicities um, and indeed the notion of national self determination has launched or the the idea of it has launched many, many, many wars and the idea that it is in some way morally better to be slaughtered uh, as a result of one of those wars than to be slaughtered as a result of a so-called imperialist war I think is a very questionable idea and it's part and parcel of the thing, I mean I don't know if if you know this, I was one of my books was trashed in The Guardian this year, which is fair enough. It's quite amusing to have criticism. But I um, mean, essentially, the author got very upset because I would uh, tried to explain. I hadn't tried to justify. I would just tried to explain British policy at the time of Amritsar in 1919. And one of the things I'd done, which he really took against, was, you know, I put it in the context of the use of violence by the post uh, post-independence Indian state uh, indeed including in Amritsar in 1984 but also you know massacres of Sikhs in other places and you know what was very clear from the response and you know from the Twitter feed in Britain that followed this was that in some way it was acceptable for all these people thought it was acceptable uh, for the Indians to brutalize people today because India is a independent state whereas for the British to kill far more people in what I think was a terrible and awful episode, I'm not in any way uh, extenuating it, I'm just simply saying one does also need to contextualise it, uh, was somehow morally worse. And I I just find this absolutely bizarre. And we get the same thing with slavery. I mean, slavery in the 18th century was clearly horrible. I mean, but, you know, people today seem happier to, you know, go and chant about uh, slavery in the 18th century than they are to deal with the fact that, you know, the inhabitants of North Korea today are slaves they ask, and that state slavery exists and people don't seem to care about or if you want to have personal slavery there is personal slavery in places like pakistan mauritania and people who are quite happy to you know get get really worked up about the past and we're talking about a long way a long past are seem to be curiously oblivious of the present and you know you're talking about empire i mean i mean here again something which we we discussed um which is this question of whether the United States is an empire. Well, let's just take for a second the question of that this is often... Uh, discussed not in a functional fashion, but it's discussed as part of a narrative in which people are hostile to the United States. And the term imperialism provides for many of them not a convenient um, uh, uh, and perceptive and cool-headed analytical term, but rather part of a rhetoric of anger. Well, you know, there are actions that the United States does that, you know, one could well think about. But it is ironic, is it not that much of the uh, anger directed against the United States is not shared by anger directed against other states which are without a doubt um, authoritarian, if not in some cases tyrannical, which are dictatorial um, and which are apt to brutalize their neighbors. And, you know, um, the... uh, I mean, it's Russian troops in Crimea. It's not American troops in Crimea. And, and, and you know, it's, it's the Chinese putting people in um, large-scale prison camps, if you wish to use the term concentration camps to emot- be emotive, you can. I'd let's just say prison camps, which I think is more accurate. Large-scale prison camps in Tsing um, is in somehow regarded as less important than the Americans putting terrorists and as much smaller number of them in Guantanamo Bay. So I think there is a profound sense here of a lack of perspective in much of the discussion of what is purported to be American imperialism.
0: I Before we embark on a discussion of American imperialism, I, I want to go back to one thing that we talked about a little bit, and that is there's a certain irony among, I, I guess I would call them nation-states or states that think of themselves as nation-states, that is that they are often... Empires themselves, and I know this only because I studied early modern history quite a bit and uh, many of the people who were unified in Germany or unified in France or unified in Russia and we think of as Russians ask the Ukrainians, um, they do not think of themselves as French or German or Russian. They think of themselves in a different way, but you never really hear about this. I and mean, we usually it usually falls into the uh, category if it's criticized as, at all as oppression of national minorities. Can you talk a little about that?
1: Yes. And I mean, I can give you other examples. I mean, Neapolitans or Sicilians for a long time regarded themselves as being ruled by Piedmontese imperialism rather than being Italians. And indeed, that affected all sorts of things like the attitude to law and order, the attitude to conscription. So I would agree with you entirely um, that what we think of as nation states are often states that have arisen from conflict in which um, you know a large a large amount of fighting was done against those who would now be regarded as compatriots, and what that underlines is the extent to which um, the analytical groups in geographical terms that we employ are very, very su- suspect Now you could take that a stage further and say the degree to which ethnicities could be understood in the same term that ethnicities are not necessarily in some you know whatever you mean by uh, you know foundational. Fashion that have gone on through history in a seamless, uh, seamless way. By their nature, many of them have a rather mixed uh, DNA and a rather and a capacity to integrate um, uh, different groups. So, I would agree with you absolutely. You can see the same thing in Spanish history, and indeed, it's ironic, of course, at the present moment that in Catalonia. Um, you know, there is a, um, a um, sort of independence movement, a separatist movement, which the Castilians are violently opposed to. But, you know, in their own time, Castile managed to conquer, for example, Andalusia managed to conquer Granada. Uh, you know, you could argue if you wanted to. I mean, I'm not sure how helpful this argument is, that Castile is a conglomerate in which you've got ethnicities that go back to pre-Roman, Roman period, Celtic uh, it- and um, barbarian groups, including the Suevi as well as the Visigoths, etc., etc. Then, uh, then a large dollop of Berber and a small dollop of Arab as well. So, the, so the, you know, the idea that 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 uh, it, there hasn't been a plasticity in the Iberian Peninsula uh, that you know, for some reason, it's okay for Portugal to be independent, uh, although a lot of Castilians in the past haven't wanted it to be. But <laughs> Catal- Catalonia being independent. Is outrageous. I think that's ridiculous. And I have to say, there are loads and loads and loads and loads of problems with British history and with Britain at the present day. But I did think that one of the more impressive features of the very unimpressive recent years was that when the Scottish independence referendum was held in. Uh, twenty fourteen although there was a certain amount of intimidation of voters who didn't want to become independent you know they had stones thrown through their windows and that sort of thing by nationalist bullies it wasn't at the same sort of level that you would get in uh, in most uh, in most countries, and that the British government at that time had made it clear that if the majority of scots wanted to uh, wanted to go uh, they would be happy um, they would be happy for them to do so or they would be prepared for them to do so. Happy is the wrong word. Actually, the thing is, and here I will tell a bad joke and everybody can shout at me, the joke that was going around my bit of England at the time was that, of course, that the big mistake with the Scottish referendum was that they didn't offer the English the vote because <laughs> the English would have voted for Scotland to, to go. Uh, but I, we'll, we'll leave that to one side.
0: Well, it's kind of funny you mention that because many of my Russian friends will uh, say something similar about the dissolution of the Soviet Union. It was really the Russians that wanted out out. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Well, actually, I mean, in many senses, that was literally true. Of course, Yeltsin, in effect, was the figure. Yeltsin, just to remember, remind everybody, um, was the um, the person in charge of the government of Russia of that period, the Russian Federation, as opposed to the Soviet Union. Yeltsin, of course, was, it was the instrumental figure at breaking up the Soviet Union. So in some respects, yes, there was an element of uh, Russian nationalism there. Although, of course, uh, what it did do was leave about 25 million Russians as, or ethnic Russians, whatever term you wish to use, as subjects of the new other republics.
0: Yes, that's absolutely true. And if you ask people in eastern Ukraine what they are, they're always very confused, because they they don't really know. I mean, they're Russian-speaking people, and often they're orthodox, and they think of themselves as members of this thing that doesn't exist anymore, the Soviet Union, and and then before that, the Russian Empire but on the other hand they are Ukrainian citizens and then there are these Russian troops <laughs> so it's 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 very confusing for those people i think well yes yeah. and i'll
1: take that a stage further because you see the same thing in britain i mean it's very very interesting there has been i mean i wrote a book there's no reason for you to know this about english nationalism to try and i wrote this in the shadow of the scottish referendum to try and ask the question well what would england look like in an english sense of identity in an english sense of history uh without scotland and one assumes without northern ireland as well and um the uh, and what's interesting is the self-identification of of for example um in Britain of immigrant groups in particular many of them will say themselves something like i am pakistani and british and What's interesting is to, is that not so many of them would say, I'm Pakistani in English. And that's interesting. And I don't know whether it's because it's an echo of the British Empire. I don't know it's whether that Britain has for them a more positive image than England. I simply don't know. But your point about uh, identities and how people have to confront identities is one that's very much been part of 20th century history. I mean, if you remember the beginning of the wasteland, near the beginning of the wasteland, and there's that cafe scene in Munich in which the woman is telling you in German that she is really echt Deutsch, you know, she's really German. But in practical terms, you know, she's come from the Eastern Baltic and uh, she is struggling, as many emigres did, to try and establish what her identity is in a in a in a period made complex by nation states. So going back, looping back to Woodrow Wilson, what Woodrow Wilson did, I mean, it wasn't his intention. I mean, he was a very stupid man, exactly what you'd expect of an academic president at Princeton. What he did was create a situation in which large numbers of people were like that. Um, They were uncertain of their identity, they were unwelcome in these new states, and they were refugees where they went to who were unwelcome there as well. So I think I have to tell you that anti-imperial national self-determination has been, in my view, not a helpful phenomenon um there are examples where it was probably if you want and i think moral concepts are okay in history i don't Agree with people that think they should be, play no role. I think it was a good thing, obviously, that the Soviet Union succumbed, and it's a very good. And nobody who visits places as I've done, like you know, many of the former republics, cannot but be happy that they are no longer uh, ruled from 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 Moscow. But on the other hand, one has to be aware that in many places, most obviously between Armenia and Azerbaijan, they led to conflict in which large numbers of people were cruelly killed. Uh, they also led in some places like to like corrupt kleptocracies, most obviously in uh, former Soviet Central Asia. So, you know, you are then moving to the situation that you shouldn't assume an empire is necessarily worse, however unattractive that empire might be.
0: Yeah, or even a cobbled-together nation-state or nation-state with a kind of titular nationality. I'm thinking of Yugoslavia, for example. If you talk to people... who. Lived in the former Yugoslavia. There's, I mean, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this,
1: but oh, get in trouble. <laughs> I mean, you can't, can I just say, as an academic, you're a former you, uh, you're a former college professor, and um, you know as well as I do that the con- the modern. You know, the modern idea that you shouldn't say anything that upsets people is exactly the reverse of what really is the purpose of education, which is to get people to think. And the easiest way to get them to think is to confront them with ideas that they don't want to have or that they find unwelcome. If somebody comes away from one of my lectures saying, I know why he is wrong, and I've thought out three reasons why he is wrong, the lecture has worked because I have provoked <laughs> them. No, 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 because I've provoked them to think. The trouble is these days, most students do that, and I have good relations with former students and good relations with current students, but I'm afraid to say this kind of ludicrous idea which you get that you mustn't say anything unwelcome means, A, that you can't teach large areas, and B, that anybody who is disaffected can cause trouble, and that, you know, management's you know, uh, of universities are only too ready to, you know, to respond by telling off the academic. Um, So no, one should say things, one should be a free thinking individual. If we cannot think freely as a species, we are not going to do very well.
0: Well, let let me put the observation in 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 as diplomatic way as I can. And that is that many people I I know or have had contact with who lived in the former territory of of Yugoslavia have Great nostalgia for Yugoslavia. And I don't think the dissolution of Yugoslavia, uh, in in a kind of moral sense, went very well. Oh, I agree with you (laughs) entirely.
1: I agree with you absolutely. And indeed, what that showed... Was I mean? You can you know you created nation states. The Slovene nation state worked quite well for a number of historical reasons. The creation of the Croat and Serb nation states did not go well uh, because of the distribution of people, because of the cruelty of the regimes established in both places, because of the nature of the warfare they practiced, and because people weren't conveniently located. So you get an, a corollary. It is not an accident. A corollary of national self-determination termination is ethnic cleansing so-called, which means vicious brutality, let's be clear about it um, and that, you know it, it's not an uh, it's not an add-on because of some failure and one of the things that is worth bearing in mind is that this kind of, uh, people seem to accept in some way, as I said earlier a greater degree of violence from nation-states than they accept from imperial powers I mean, you know, it, it, any murdered anybody brutalized is a crime so you know 20 million people being brutalized is 20 million crimes it is not actually a completely different nature that there is crime as opposed to no crime but people need to have some sort of sense of grip here it is much worse to kill or brutalize millions than it is to kill or brutalize small numbers and on the whole on the whole the uh, the uh, the states that sought to create ethnically homogeneous uh, units were pretty um, pretty vicious and pretty nasty and ironically, they acted in a way to parallel the most vicious of all of the um, of the Well, I suppose it shares it with the Soviet Union and, and Communist China, but let's just say the most vicious of the states securely in the Western tradition, which is Nazi Germany, in that Nazi Germany's ambition in this respect was to create a state that was Juden frei, no Jews. Uh, that was a form of ethnic cleansing of the most brutal and uh, vicious fashion. But in a way, it corresponded with a kind of nation state imperialism, because the idea was you didn't want this other ethnic which had, as you know, we know all about the weird and the weird views of people like Himmler and Hitler. Which had an alternative magic that they were really thought of as highly sinister, as well as seeing it as having, as well as seeing Judaism as correspondingly, and at the same time both left wing and right wing.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I, I know that our time is. Uh, Coming to a close But we must do another one soon Yeah, we we should But I want to ask you about this term That you've used a couple of times And that is a, a, a functional empire What is a functional empire And what are examples of them today?
1: Well, a functional empire is, first of all, a place that doesn't call itself an empire and may, in fact, not have what we understand as an imperial ideology, but is an empire depending upon whatever is your definition of an empire, because it functions like that. So there has been discussion, you will know, as to whether the United States is an empire, you will know that. There has been discussion even recently as to whether the european union is an empire no no no. i mean i I think it isn't an empire but you know i'm just talking about so these are terms in which depending upon your definition you can end up with an argument that these are these are an empire i would argue that much more clearly Modern India is an empire. I would argue much more clearly that modern China and modern Indonesia are all functional empires. So I think you know they don't have an imperial ideology, although the BJP seems to be pushing India in that direction of sort of a sectarian Hindu ideology of that type. Um, but essentially, they don't have a uh, imperial ideology, but functionally they have many of the characteristics of imperial powers.
0: Yeah, I think the case of India is very interesting, and I don't know a lot about it, but I I know that from my Indian friends that they're always Indian and something else. (laughs) <laughs> because there are so many different kinds of Indians. Well, I mean, the
1: sort yeah. of thing is, I mean, imperial characteristics. For example, a determination to dominate the borderlands and to push others back. So the great game with China in the Himalayas, the Indian determination to try and dominate Nepal, the dominate, the attempt to dominate uh, the northeast, um, the the conflict against people in places like Nagaland, uh, the anti-Islamic uh, ideology and practice in Kashmir, um, the the. The habit of interfering in weaker neighbors, whether it's Sri Lanka or the Maldives. Um, You know, there is a lot there that you could say is that of a classic uh, imperial power. Um, And of course, the irony there is that it's in an imperial race with another imperial power, which is China. And as China expands its power, into near India, into places like Myanmar, which we used to call Burma, or to Sri Lanka, which we used to call Ceylon, or, you know, establishing its base at Gwailor on the coast of Baluchistan in Pakistan. So the Indians, in turn, built, you know, trying to build up their navy and, as if we're in an Anglo-German naval race at the beginning of the 20th century. <laughs> um, and I think the, and so I think that these you could call functionally empires. You know, the fact, I think that the confusion for modern people if most people today think an empire is something ruled by an emperor, Napoleon, or the empire of Brazil, or uh, the attempt in the 1860s to create an empire in Mexico, or the empire in China, which lasted until the 19 teens. But an empire is not necessarily something that is under an emperor. That is the key point. And you go all the way back. There was a, the Republican Rome was an empire by, uh, you know, 40 BC. Uh, the fact that it didn't have an emperor yet didn't mean it wasn't an empire. And so therefore, people have to get their head round the idea that you might have an ideology that is democratic, like modern India, or an ideology which k- claims to be a sort of uh, you know, sort of popular, sort of leading age for the people as with modern China. But these can still be imperial, um, even if President Xi doesn't, or Mr. Modi, don't call themselves emperors. Mm. Well, uh, I
0: know that... Uh you have a hard stop, so let me say that we've been talking with Jeremy Black, the wonderful Jeremy Black, who does indeed know everything, and this has been a fascinating conversation, and I want to do it again. In fact, I want to agree on our next discussion. Can it be nationalism? Because I think you probably— I would be That would be good. So the people that listen to the New Books Network and listen to all these interviews, you can look forward to a discussion uh, by me, the ignorant, with uh, Jeremy, who knows no, everything. Not, don't be silly, Marshall.
1: <laughs> that's a ridiculous thing, and it is embarrassing. All Can right. I just say, no, 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 the more that you work at a subject, the more you know that you do not know. What you yeah, try yeah. to do is to uh, advance and offer concepts and methods that others will apply or at least disagree with. Uh, and history is not a question of knowing a lot of facts. What history is about is it's a habit of humane, sceptical, not cynical, but humane, sceptical thought. And my key view on history, and I suppose this is as an ideological position, but we ought to be wary of ideologies, whether they are the formal ideologies of things like communism or socialism or fascism, or whether they are the implicit ideologies of forms of particular types of historical method descriptive historical method. Now, I'm delighted to have been talking to you. I've been speaking from Shreveport, my first visit here. And let me tell you, I've never been to Shreveport before. It is actually very pleasant indeed. And I would recommend others coming here.
0: Well, that's terrific. I recommend people go to Shreveport too. So our next discussion is going to be on nationalism. And Jeremy, let me say goodbye to you. Thank you for being on the show. All right. And let me say uh, to everyone listening to this that uh, this is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. We've been talking with Jeremy Black and we will pick up the discussion next time. Thanks very much for listening.